0: Assalamualaikum alaikum and welcome back to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. As always, I'm your host, Khurram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of today's podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, I have a special guest interview with a man who specializes in both public speaking as well as youth outreach, of course, specifically for Muslim youth outreach. Today's episode, I will be interviewing Bilal al Kadri, who focuses on those two topics with a specialization in providing Muslim knowledge as well as Islamic guidance to those who seek it, again, specifically the youth. Now, this is, in my opinion, a very important thing and a very important uh, part of a good Muslim community is to have people who are there to guide those who seek it, of all ages, not just those who are maybe adults, but also those who are younger, as well as those who are becoming adults, which is why Bilal, in my opinion, was a perfect person to interview, as well as a great person to get to know and talk to. He provided some great insight and some great knowledge, and I really, really enjoyed our discussion. But I don't want to blabber on too much, because I don't want to take up all this time and, you know not get to what I really want to get to, which is Bilal Al-Qadri. So without further ado, how are you doing today, Bilal?
1: Alhamdulillah, I'm doing amazing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and bless
0: all those that are tuning in. And may Allah reward you all. Ashaqallah, thank you. Um, Obviously, uh, there's a lot that we can get into and a lot that we do want to focus on. uh, But I think the best place to begin is introduction. Uh, What's your background and how did you first get into public speaking and the, I guess, Islamic dawah scene or the Islamic knowledge scene?
1: Yes, alhamdulillah, a little bit about me. I've been a public speaker for 10 years. Uh, I've worked with a variety of organizations and nonprofits, um, Celebrate Mercy, Noor Kids, Muhsin, um, Access, Helping Hands. And alhamdulillah, I was a former youth director for some time. Um, a little bit about my background uh, I wasn't always a practicing Muslim I actually um, dealt with my share of um, you know just being at my lowest and hitting rock bottom um, dealt with my share of mental health issues um, and uh, and yeah so you know I've always wanted to be a teacher since I was in the third grade never thought that I would be teaching Islam but um, had a spiritual epiphany when I hit rock bottom at 21 and on the verge of ending my life i found allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah. um i think about a year into praying i couldn't relate to the khatib so i uh i I told my father who was a board member that i wanted to do a khutbah and alhamdulillah um one of the, the the sheikhs took me under his wing and just been teaching um since alhamdulillah so started doing khutwas at my local masjid uh, doing uh and lectures and then um alhamdulillah I got invited to to different speaking events locally and then alhamdulillah starting to do things uh, out of state and alhamdulillah I, I had to let youth the youth committee go because i was growing as a public speaker and um so alhamdulillah that, that's kind of where i'm at right now
0: alhamdulillah that's that's a phenomenal uh, origin and story i mean I think it's just a testament that, you know, Islam is never closed for anyone either. I mean, for for you, for your journey, if you don't mind me asking, like what, I guess, first got you back into becoming a practicing Muslim, especially, I think you said at 21. So, you know, you were kind of past that high school, uh, kind of that young adult, young manhood. Uh, What got you first back into Islam? Yeah, I mean,
1: for me, I, I you know, I, I was born a Muslim, but I wasn't born a practicing Muslim. My mother is very Americanized. My father you know, all of his relatives are overseas um, or, or in like different parts of um, different parts of the world. And my father was always working. So I was kind of grew up in this, you know, Sunday and Saturday cartoon phase, video game phase. I didn't really like Arabic school and I was bullied a lot, picked on a lot, had very low self-esteem. Uh, growing up and then um, you know I when I started and it's a a long story but to kind of keep it short uh, when I got to high school that's kind of where I really cracked out of my shell Um, but unfortunately I was trying to be fake and kind of just kind of wanted to have this image of what people wanted me to be as and got kind of caught up with the wrong crowd Um, then when I hit 21 I was kind of at rock bottom I was in a relationship that ended and um, <clears throat> kind of was going through financial hardship. Uh, my school, I was failing from that. Um, I just bought a car and a house. So I had a lot of stress going on. I had two people die in my family. And, um, you know, I, I realized that um, my life wasn't going as, as, as planned. So um, actually, I wanted to end my life, attempted a suicide twice. Um, but the third time when I went to attempt it, I realized that the only constant that has ever been there was Allah. And for the first time in my life, um, you know, I, I heard my father um, below me doing the iqama, hayya ala salah, hayya ala come to pray, come to success. And I raised my hands to Allah and I, I realized, so Allah guide me. No matter how many times I've turned away from you, just, just so Allah guide me. Um, So I, I think, you know, what I've gone through in my life, I think, Looking back now, I had to go through it because I've saved a lot of lives, alhamdulillah. Um, It's one thing to meet a sheikh from overseas who has no idea what domestic violence is or depression or, you know, any issues that youth are going through now, but to have someone that goes through it and can be relatable when speaking to people. I think that, you know, alhamdulillah, every step that I took in a negative way, I think it was just for, for for something positive in the future so that's kind of a little bit about my story in terms of how i found islam through um
0: the hardships um and uh, yeah wow uh, alhamdulillah that's that's very uh that was a very touching um i'm very glad that you, that you did find islam and that you know you're able to relate those kind of experiences to people as well um you know i uh, that, that's that's a very touching story. Uh, I'm sure that there are probably a lot of people that, that can relate to that or, or just, you know, the, the feeling of not having that Islamic connection as well. Um, but, wow, I, I think that's that's phenomenal. So I'm sure that you have a lot of that, that kind of background and it assists when giving, you know, public speaking or even just relating within, uh, you know, the Islamic context and in sort of uh, in uh, North America and, you know, the, the Western world as well. Oh, yeah. Alhamdulillah. I mean, I've had
1: people tell me, you know, you know, they're they're addicted to something or their kids are addicted to a substance. And it's like, you know, I, I was addicted to something. It wasn't like hardcore drugs, but they were fat loss pills. And, um, you know, I, I kind of it's, it's very difficult to tell someone, you know, you need like you're far too far away from God or you know, you need to fix your relationship with God or you're possessed by a djinn Um it's, it's, it's one thing to say that, but it's another to actually understand people. You know, I, I remember one person came to me and said that, you know, they have same um, gender attraction. And I was like, okay, and we, we can talk about it. And he's like, are you, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, you're the first person out of five people that I've spoken with. that said, I'm not going to hellfire. After I said that, I said, I mean, I, I'm here to listen to you. And it doesn't sound like you did anything wrong. It just sounds like it's a feeling. So, I think, I think, uh, yeah, being relatable and going through experiences and knowing kind of the background about things—it's it's hard. It's a hard world out there. Um, and I think in life we experience life in order to help our future out. I think that's one thing that we're going to be talking about today is parenting and you know raising kids in this world. You know, I I've seen a lot of um ways that parents would raise their kids um but i've also i was a kid by myself and um i have children alhamdulillah so i kind of um you know, I've, I've kind of used my kids as halal guinea pigs i guess to say <laughs> but um i think for the most part your best teachers are the ones that were the worst they taught they taught you what not to do right your, your managers that you've had in life they're they the, the worst ones are the are the best ones because they teach you what kind of boss you want and what kind of boss you want to be once you become a manager. So I think, um, you know, our, our experiences are nothing but um, nothing but shaping us who we are today.
0: Perfect. That that's an excellent answer. I think that's a great way to to put it as well, because I can definitely relate to having bad managers that, that taught me what not to do. Uh, but I think that's, that's an excellent way and, and a great transition to, You know, I think one of our first topics and one thing that I really wanted to focus on, uh, because as I was going through your Instagram account and learning more about you as well, uh, I just doing my research. That's all. um, It was just more about uh, what caught my eye was about the lectures that you had targeted towards children. Right. I mean, there's many, uh, you know, ulama and scholars that do lectures on many mature adult topics or for the teens, the young teens in high school um, but you had many Islamic lectures focused towards children. I really wanted to focus in on this. Like, Why do you feel that it's important to engage not just with just children, but young children as well, right? And trying to relate the message of Islam to them. And I think probably one of the biggest challenges is probably how do you deliver uh, you know, the important message uh, and sometimes maybe an adult message to a child how do you, how have you excelled at, you know, adapting that, but also making it uh, understandable for them?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it, kids are very smart. They're very intelligent. And when I'm talking about kids, I'm talking about six year old kids. Um, you know, I, I had a, um, a sixth grader tell me that he wanted to end his life. Um, I have had fifth graders tell me that they that they vape, um, that they have relationships with, with other, you know, they, they have attraction to other genders. Um, And you know, when I was a youth director, I'd hear a lot of that stuff from high schoolers, and now it's slowly leaking into middle school and elementary school. And um, you know, when it when it comes to kids, I remember I, I hated Arabic school, and I remember one time, ironically, I was a weekend school principal for a couple years, and I was kind of floating through the hallways, and I heard this kid tell his father to go to hell. And I saw myself in that kid's shoes. And I talked to this kid. He must have been seven years old. I just talked to him and I, I, I kind of gave him like a 10-minute talk. And um, and um, he, he he told me 10 years later, he said that the 10-minute conversation that you had with me made me have a better relationship with my father, made me understand the religion. More. And, you know, kids planting seeds in the hearts of children is very easy it's through your actions that's how you teach your kids you can yell at kids till you're blue in the face right you can tell your kid if you don't pray you're going to go to hell but if you tell your kids hey come pray with me and we'll get jannah together right there's, there's a different approach um the prophet muhammad sallallahu was is the best example of how oh, to interact also. with children um, there's an instance where he, there's a kid that was playing with water. Now, if my kid plays with water, I'm freaking out because it's a mess that I got to clean up. The Prophet Muhammad goes in front of his face, this child's face, and he narrates the story when he becomes an adult. So he, the, the remnants and the memories still linger in this person's mind. He says the Prophet came in front of my face and he blew water back into my face, like he, like he, there's a bowl of water and he's blowing water out. Prophet Muhammad comes in front of that bowl of water and starts to blow water on the kid's face. So, you know, we, we, we've had those memories, those memories, those impressions of, you know, how people, how, how people are and act. I think for me, what I've, you know, as a youth director, you know, I, I, I love teaching all age groups. I've taught as old as 80 year old men fiqh, to as young as six year old kids. Fiqh. Um, I think what I, what I, what I love the most is to see that the creativeness in terms of how to approach children, there's a limit, right? I mean, I talked to some children that are six, seven year olds about isolation, about big feelings, about feeling sad, but there's like a limit, right? I mean, there's certain thresholds, there's, there's like a threshold that you don't cross. Um, that's why I like teaching children, but you know, I I also like teaching adults because you can break those barriers. You can talk about deeper things with with, with adults and teenagers. With kids, you have to be very animated. You you have to tell a good story. And you have to be relatable in the sense of what they're going through, but also something that happened 1,400 years ago and making it fun for kids to understand. An example of this would be Yusuf, alayhis salam Prophet Yusuf was abandoned by his own brothers, thrown in a well. You can only imagine Yusuf, how he felt. He felt all alone. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rescued him. He took care of him. And at the end of the story, Yusuf forgave his brothers even though he went to jail wrongfully. Even though he didn't see his father for so long. So, you know, in just the story of Yusuf, you have sibling rivalry. You have, what do you do when you feel like you're all alone, when you're bullied? Adam, alayhi salam, was bullied by shaitan, right? So I think that when you take the stories and you just put them in the mindset of what kids are going through, you have to know what kids are going through. You have to listen. And, um, you know, the story of Ibrahim, alayhi salam, he's a child who goes to Azra. He's a father figure. Some scholars say it's, it's also his father. And he says... He says, yeah, Epitihi, oh, my dear father, why do you worship these idols? And his father eventually is like, get out of here before I throw rocks at you. And Ibrahim asks the same question over and over and over again, which gets his father to that point of frustration. And as kids, we usually do that. We ask our kids, we ask our parents multiple times, can I have it? Can I buy it? Can I just want to do this? I just just I, one more, just want one more, one more, one more of a candy, or I just want to get my car. I just want to get this. And we keep asking until we get it. And then when our parents get upset, our reaction to that is very defensive. Usually we'll be like, you know, who are you to yell at me? Or you can't yell at me like that, or that's not fair. Ibrahim, as a child, he withdraws himself from the room. And he makes dua for his father, even though his father was mean. And a lot of times, parents are mean to their kids. It may not be intentional, it may just be because of pressure. But as children, how do we react to that? And then when Ibrahim becomes a father, he wants to talk to his son. He goes to Ismail and says, Ya abunaihi, oh my dear son, why, uh, you know, what do you think of the fact that Allah wants me to sacrifice you? So, you know, in that situation, he's listening to his son. He wants to know what his son's opinion is. But when Ibrahim's a, a child, his father doesn't want to talk to him. So, you know, it, it's it's very... You have to really get into the mindset of children and what they go through. And a lot of times they'll tell you the difficulties that they face. And sometimes you'll see it and sometimes parents will tell you. Um, and sometimes you live through it as well. So, so I think to, you know to answer the question... I love teaching kids because that's the, 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 the foundation of who they're going to become. Middle school kids, adult kids, um, and adults. Adults are very hard to kind of you know condition the heart um, and to condition the mind to kind of um, think versus react in a negative way. Um, with middle schoolers, they're still trying to find an identity for themselves, right? But for kids, that's the foundation of who they're going to become. And a lot of kids nowadays, it's all about, you know, Cocoa Melon and Netflix and how do we stimulate our kids and keep them busy and active and put them in sports and put them in this and put them in that. And then the Islamic principles kind of just kind of, you know, go, go, go over their head. And then they, they, they become that, you know, that, 10, that 10-year-old kid that just wants to re- be a rebellious kid and he doesn't know how to take his emotions and, and channel it into something else. So I think with, with the little ones, their heart is very pure and innocent. And the foundation that is there, um, uh, it's there for you to create. And it's a blank slate. And you're able to start fresh and you're able to really, you know, condition that heart to to getting them to a point of how to deal with their big emotions and eventually what that would look like. So alhamdulillah, that's 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 a little bit about that
0: no that, that's an excellent question and you know you touched upon this a bit but in terms of your own process in uh, let's just say preparing the islamic uh you know lecture or the, the knowledge that you're going to give the child i guess if there's a parent or maybe someone who does have a child or, or a younger sibling how would you say would be the best way to kind of prepare to give uh, you know a islamic uh, knowledge to a child right because oftentimes there's all there's a lot of these you know intricate details or whatnot but what kind of focus do you usually have when it comes to making sure that the message is properly delivered? I know you mentioned that uh, many of them are smarter than I think people often give credit to kids, but how have you kind of approached that? I think I think with kids,
1: I mean, for my own personal experience with my own children, you have to do things um, wholeheartedly and fully, right? So my kids, for example, they go to Islamic school, Montessori. And their teacher, every morning, does morning of quad with them. But Saturday and Sunday, or when they don't have school, Baba and Mama don't do that. So it's like, hmm, is it just something that we do at school? Right? If you tell your kids don't yell at them and that, don't yell at people and then you yell at your kids or don't hit people and you hit your kids, it's not a it's not a 100% thing. It's, it's something like, oh, sometimes we can do it and sometimes we can't. So what are those limits, right? So I think holistically, Every avenue that your child is learning from, it has to be from a nurturing experience, right? So, for example, uh, waking up in the morning, as how did you sleep? Did you sleep well? Bismillah, what do we say when we wake up before we enter the hammam, the bathroom? What do we say? What's the dua that we say? Oh, Bismillah, make sure you eat with your right hand. You know, things of that nature. You know, if you're putting kids, um, if you're going to put the kids on TV, Make sure it's Islamic content. Make sure it's content that is beneficial. Make sure that when they ask you questions like, um, you know, for example, my, my kid one time was watching, uh, we were watching Netflix, I was putting on Netflix and Kim Kardashian was there. And I yelled at my son, don't look. So what does kids do? They look, right? Mm-hmm. So now I have to explain to him. And, and there's a difference between sheltering and protecting your kids. We can't shelter our kids to where they wake up you know, teenagers, and they're like, Oh, people do this, people look like this, they're shocked, right? You protect your kids, and you tell your kids what what's out there. So that way, they can formulate that opinion, and know what's right and wrong. So I had to explain that, you know, not everybody's a Muslim, like they want to know how come some Muslims celebrate Christmas. So it's like, you don't want to say, Oh, we don't do that. Well, then how come, you know, this person's doing it? So now subhanallah when my, my kid sees this like pizza advertisement for coupons and there's a mermaid on there he's he's like oh that's ayib we should call them and say that you know they shouldn't put that 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 mermaid on there or when we're you know driving in the car and he sees someone dressed inappropriately on the street and my my 4-year-old yells out haram baba don't look it's ayib they're dressed ayib mm-hmm. right it's 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 a it's a reflection of that you sh- protected your kids you didn't shelter them I think a lot of parents shelter the kids, and they get exposed to things in school when the ki- when the parents aren't there, and that's when they're they're first exposed to it, and they usually um, don't know how to react, so they react to their peers' reaction, versus um, you know what would my parents think, and then they end up hiding it. So I think you have to holistically. Um, nurture the child in all aspects right even as young as to when they're still in the womb reading quran like it's never too young um your your child's never too young to learn islamic values like when a child for example is a newborn baby every morning and every night you do the three kuls with them they don't understand it but it's just their body is going to be used to hearing that right um you know anytime they're starting to eat what they're left Oh, the Prophet Muhammad would always eat with his right hand because that's sunnah. And, you know, then when they start saying, well, why can't I eat with my left? You say, well, usually clean with the left You're, you're you know, you're, you're, when you use the bathroom. And you don't want to, you know, sometimes it may get dirty. You try your best to clean. So now you're teaching them cleanliness, right? Um, teaching children about modesty and hijab doesn't start when a child is reaching puberty. It starts when you say, Hey, you know, we're gonna to go to the masjid, but we gotta make sure that our knees are covered, right? You're teaching them about aura. You're teaching them that, hey, we don't show people our belly button, or hey, you don't, you know, my my son's doing this thing now where he just takes off his shirt. And I'm like, no, no, we, we don't do that because we don't want someone to look at us and 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 um you know, we don't show that to people. That's only for like inside of a bathroom, right? So these are just kind of simple practical ways, but all in all you're teaching your child. And the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was a teacher, right? He was a teacher. He taught children. He taught kids, you know, for example, when when one of the companions was eating um, just like a savage, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, slow down, say, Bismillah, eat from what's in front of you, eat with your right hand, right? So he's teaching, he's using every moment to teach and educate. But it's not like in the form of, stop it, you're going to hellfire, Um you know, for example, um, and, I, and I'll conclude the, uh, on this part. Um, Yusuf, salam, the great-grandson of the Ibrahim, right? He goes to his father and he says very similarly what Ibrahim says to Azra. He says, yeah, Abitihi, Oh, my dear father, I had this dream. Right? Now, if I went up to my dad about a dream, he'd be like, get out of here. I don't care. I don't have time for that. But Ya'qub, the grandson of the Ibrahim, he says, yeah, yeah, he, says um, he listens to the dream and he says, Ya bunaya, ya bunaya. The same thing that Ibrahim says to Ismail. Ya bunaya. You know what do you think that Allah wants me to sacrifice you? Now the great grandson is saying to his son, Ya bunayya Do not share this dream with your your brothers because they're going to be impacted by the shaitan. The shaitan. They're going to be jealous. Now parents usually do the first part. They say, Don't you dare do that. But they don't really say why. Don't touch that because you're going to burn yourself and you're going to get hurt and then you're going to go to the hospital. Sometimes parents just say, don't do that. Don't touch that. But they don't really say why. And then kids get curious and they find out. So I think holistically, we, you know, we have to look at the parents of our past, uh, meaning, you know, how the prophets were parents, um, but also use every moment to teach our children.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very, very good, um, you know, points that you've made there. And I think that that really leads into asking Um, And and obviously, you know, you can't answer this entirely, but um, in your opinion or in your experience, do you feel that the Muslim community engages with young children enough? Like, is there really enough, I guess, in a general way, of engagement with uh, the younger audiences?
1: I think what I've seen in the last couple years is a strong need to start nurturing and educating and putting Islamic program and content for the younger uh, children. I don't think it's done well. I think it's done very poorly. Um, It could be done a lot better. Um, You know, it's very saturated for adults. There's a lot of stuff to do. Usually with kids, it's like, here's some crayons, here's a book. And there you go. But what happens when they grow out of that phase? Right. Um, You know, for, for, it's getting better, right? There's a lot of stuff that's out there, but I think we got to do a better job, right? We have to do a better job at, you know, if if I go to a masjid, for example, and, you know, the old amul, the old uncle, the old auntie, when they see a kid running in the masjid, a bulk of them are going to yell if they're running around. Hey, this is a masjid. Sit down. What are you doing? Right? Why are you running around? Who's your mom? Who's your dad? When in reality, that's not what the Prophet Muhammad would have done. He had two children, his grandkids climb on his back, and he spoke to him, he spoke to them so gently. He was in a sejda, and he was in a sejda so long because people thought that he had and people thought that he had died. But he don't <coughs> he didn't want to disturb their play of these children. A Bedouin man urinated in the masjid. And he spoke to the Bedouin man more kindly than the Bedouin man's own mother. So it shows us that in the masjid, children's first exposure, like if a child was to run to a musallah, they see open land. They see a park. They see a playground. They run. They're going to be loud because that's what children do. But what often happens is their first exposure in the masjid, they get yelled at. They get, hey, you don't do that in here. They don't get that love. They don't get that mercy. And because of that, children don't want to come to the masjid because they have those bad experiences. So I think that the more that we make our masajids inclusive, right? Masajids having playgrounds are awesome. Masajids that have soundproof rooms for children and moms that that have babies that are crying, ahala sahala, welcome, come on that shows you that it's an inviting atmosphere once in a while you're probably going to get those 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 hey don't do that but i think a few of the massages that i've been a part of they're doing great work some of them have a lot of work to do and then others are just so far away and that's where you lose the children when they have those negative experiences um in the massages
0: Mm -hmm. i think that that's a great point yeah i mean I, I've seen myself, yeah, some, you know, musjids that do some great work in terms of engaging with children and some either, you know, maybe they don't have the resources or just it isn't there. Um, but I mean, for the amount of uh, lectures you've given to young children, uh, what's something that you've learned? You know, what's something you've learned either about Islam or just about, you know, giving a lecture? <sighs>
1: I would say the biggest thing, the two biggest things is, I want to say, okay, the the biggest thing that I've learned of giving lectures to kids is the level of impact that you have, you'll never see until the future. When it comes to children, you're planting trees, trees take time, you'll plant a tree and probably won't even see a fruit until maybe six, seven, eight years. And if anything, they're nothing. The little baby fruits. One kid I remember, um, I gave, so the lecture that I was giving was given was about death. Didn't think nothing of it. It was going to be for high schoolers, but these middle schoolers showed up and, um, I was like, all right, whatever. So these sixth graders, these fifth graders, they post up, I do this talk. I'm like, whatever. 10 years later, this kid comes up to me and he's so happy, he hugs me. I'm like, who are you? Do I know you? He's like, you don't remember me, do you? I'm like, I don't. Um, he said, ten years ago, you gave a lecture about death to like three kids. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, I was one of those kids, and that lecture made me want to become a doctor, and I just got accepted to doctors uh, to 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 wow. be in the doctor program. So, you know, similarly to that story where the father, or the where the kid told his father go to hell. It took about 10 years to see the fruit of that seed that you planted. So the biggest thing that I learned is that children are trees. It takes time. It takes love. It takes nurturing. It takes protecting them during the winters, watering them in the summers, Making sure that they're growing in proper ways, so you're you know you're pruning, you're you're cutting them in, in, in certain directions, so to speak, if we're if we're using the metaphors of a tree. But after five, six, seven, eight, ten years, the roots of that tree is going to be very strong, and then after time, it's going to start giving back. The fruits are going to start showing. You'll be able to t- taste the sweetness of all of your hard work, but also. Your community and those around you will also enjoy the sweetness of your work. So the biggest thing that I learned is that children are trees; they take time, but it's definitely a huge investment to uh, to embark in.
0: You know, I think that really leads into the, the next point that I wanted to focus on, and that's largely what good role models are. And you know, we often you know we lecture children and. There's often obviously a lot of uh, un-Islamic things that are out there. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, we often pursue this idea of a role model, or at least, uh, you know, we'll look for who to look up to. And I know Islamically we'll say, well, the prophets um, and, you know, the Sahaba, yes. But in terms of how we find that role model, you know, what are... What, would, what recommendation would you give when it comes to looking for a role model? You know, and we talked about the past and the present as well. So how would you kind of look at that complex problem? Because obviously the Sahaba and the Prophet Muhammad is someone that we look up to, but you can't relate to them in every context.
1: So, I mean, for this question, there's two types of role models. There's those that are dead and there's those that are alive. Those that are alive will have a role model that's dead. And the reason that being dead is important in terms of having a role model is because you know how they've ended their life. Um, A lot of times we take role models on social media, for example, who we think are, wow, these are the people that I want to be when I grow up. Two, three years later, they let you down. Right? And you built this person in your head, or maybe you meet them for the first time, and they're just nobodies. They're just like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna talk with you. So our biggest role model should be our parents. And as parents, we need to say that our role model is the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the companions. And the way that you do that is you say, you know, the reason that I love eating with my right hand is because the Prophet Muhammad would do that. You know why I enter the foot with my left foot in the bathroom? Because the Prophet Muhammad would do that. You know why I start my putting on my uh, shoe with my right foot? Because the Prophet Muhammad would do that. Do you know why I wake up in the morning and I, um, you know, I brush my teeth? Because the Prophet Muhammad would do that. So the more that you say that, the more it becomes, I know who your role model is. And the biggest way that we can also do this is to humanize the past it's very easy to do that but not a lot of many people they don't do it uh, because they don't know how humanizing the prophet muhammad sallallahu Alaihi wa he wasn't a superhero okay it's not like he woke up 40 years old and he has a cape and he's a prophet he was born an orphan his mother died at the age of six his grandfather died at the age of eight. He was a single father of four daughters when his wife, after 25 years, passed away. Um, he had a whole year of sorrow where his uncle passed away a month after that, where a whole city threw rocks at him for three months or for three miles. So when you look at the Prophet Muhammad, sallam, said, he's a superhero. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a superhero, but he cried. He was hurt, you know. <laughs> When the Prophet Muhammad was 56 years old, his mother died at the age of, he was at the age of six. He only really spent about two years with her, right? After two years, um, Halima comes and and takes him to the desert for for a few years. So when you're six, I mean, you don't really know your parents that much. When the Prophet Muhammad was 56 years old, Um, he goes to an area and he starts to cry to the point where he hyperventilates and he can't even breathe because he's crying so hard. And they ask him, why are you crying? He said, this is where my mom was buried and I miss her, right? You're talking about a man who's 56, an old man crying, and he only knew his mom for two years, who died at the age of six. And I can't, you're telling me that I can't humanize that, telling me that, that the prophet cried and when we talk about the prophet Muhammad we, we paint this picture that nothing bad happened to him right um, or maybe we, we kind of gloss over certain things and we put it in the picture that the prophet Muhammad is perfect and he is perfect but we paint it in the sense that he's perfect without any emotions he cried he got angry he you know he had those feelings but how did he take those feelings and he conveyed them to Allah and he, he took them and he made ju'at? So I think that we have to humanize people. Um, the other day, I, you know, I, I just finished up a series uh, for children and we spoke about six companions. We spoke about Bilal. So I'm talking to seven-year-old kids about slavery and how, you know, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a criminal in a store a bad guy in the story, open your eyes and tell me what color that person is. And when these kids say black, six-year-old kid is automatically assuming that black means bad. Um, talking to people about how Jafar, the Prophet Muhammad's cousin, he migrated to Abyssinia, where he was a minority. And he loved the Prophet Muhammad sallam, that when he was reunited with him, um, he ran up to him. And when he died, Asma bint Umais, his wife, cried so much. And the Prophet Muhammad told people to take care of her. And it shows us that, yeah, these companions were warriors, but they had feelings too. And as people, we need to understand that and humanize them. So I'm teaching these kids about how Abu Bakr loved the Prophet Muhammad, that He put his toe in a hole where a scorpion was so the Prophet Muhammad wouldn't get bitten by it, right? And when you tell these stories to kids, they're like, what? I just thought Abu Bakr was like the superhero. And he's like, no, he was a human being like you and I. He had eyeballs. He had a nose. He had ears. When you humanize it, those role models become relatable. And then you want to know, well, how did this person do that and handle that? How did the Prophet Muhammad deal with hardships? That's what made the Prophet Muhammad perfect. That's what made the Prophet Muhammad a superhero, is because how he dealt with the sadness, how he dealt with loss and grief and pain, with challenges, with losing, right? The Prophet Muhammad viewed losses as wins, right? So, to answer the question about role models, we have to be the role models for our children, but always directing that our role models are people of the past. And there's nothing wrong with having um, role models outside of prophets and companions. It's just you want to make sure that, you know, like I've had people say, I I want you to teach my, I want my kid to be like you. No, 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 you do not want your kid to be like me. I have flaws that you don't know about. And I know people that have died. And then when they die, that's when like all these like bad skeletons come out of the closet. And you're like, man, I thought this person was like flawless. So you in terms of role models, you really you really have to be careful, you know, who you're looking up to and who you want your children to look up to, especially, especially when you know, a lot of them are falling in love with characters, right? Like Blippy or you know, these characters that we see on TV, Miss Rachel and all of that. People idolize, idolise these people. My kids in poke into Pokemon right now. His his role model is Ash Ketchum. Mm-hmm. I wanna be a I wanna be a Pokemon master like him. I wanna be the very best. I wanna catch up. You and, and so now I have to redirect him and say, Ash Ketchum, you know, he's great, he's a cool role model, but he wants to be the best and he's gonna do that whatever it takes. But you know, he has good morals. A lot of those morals you could see that through, you know, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you could see that through this. I don't want you to look at Ash Ketchum as your only guy. I want you to see the Prophet Muhammad in different people. Right? I want you to see his behavior, his character, his morals, and I want you to be able to identify that. Why is Blippi always smiling? Because the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam said that greet your brother with a cheerful face, right? So finding these things and then twisting, not twisting it, but pulling it um, to see
0: how the prophet and the companions did that in a humanizing way. Excellent. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a very good point. Um, and, you know, I, I think that we can also look into this, you know, in terms of the male and the female difference, right? I mean, males often, young males often um, it's, it's been a common topic of, of discussion as well um, as to who like young males look to as role models or even young females, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, when it comes to a youth approaching someone, right, and they ask, like, how should I go find a role model? What kind of advice would you give to someone as to how to answer that question? You know, how, not just, you know, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but how do you lead someone through that?
1: I would say there's nothing wrong with trying to be like someone, you just want to make sure that they're respected people, right? You know, you have people like Fousey tube or Andrew Tate, let's say. These are popular people that are on social media that we see and we associate the things that they have with things that we want. FouseyTube was big during my day. Oh, I want people to love me and people to, you know, pranks and all this stuff. And you look down the road and, you know, he's been up and down and up and down and up and down. And, you know, it's sad to see that, right? And you you look at other people that have been in jail or in prison because of things that they're doing that social media doesn't portray, right? Social media portrays this really fake image of things. I remember um, there's a bulk of Islamic couples that portray themselves as what people would in the chat be like, this is a relationship goal. And oh man, I want to have this relationship. And then you find two, three years later that what everyone is looking at is I want to be like that. You find out that this couple is being domestically abused, right? That the husband's hurting and punching this girl and making her eye black. That these two, Relate, these two couples are saying that they're Muslims, but they're actually going to the club every day, and they're not. She's not even dressed in niqab. She's dressed in she. She just wears that for show. So it's very scary to look at someone, especially with social media, and say, "I want to be like that." I think for 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 children that are very gullible. Heck, even me, man. I, I mean, I looked at people and I was like, "Wow, I want to be like that." You got to be very careful very careful. Like, what are these people actually doing? Right? You have to really analyze things. And as children, we, I think that's one of the biggest flaws is kids mm-hmm. take things at face value. So, you know, when they see someone just successful and happy and living life, they don't know that behind the scenes that they're actually sad people. I remember one time um, I was teaching a class to kids about Sira. And I think it was the sixth week I started to tell them that I opened up about something to them. And I was saying that you'll never know the life of somebody. They can be happy. The Prophet Muhammad was very happy, even though bad things happened. And I was said, you know, right now I'm here and I'm happy and blah, blah, blah. And you don't know that my mom has been in the hospital for a couple months and that, you know, I'm, this is going on in my life and this is going on in my life. and My kid is sick and blah, blah, blah. And, um, the kids were like, what brother be you get sad too. And I think that when you take a step back, you know, and see things for, with a grain of salt, it makes things a lot easier. And you start analyzing people and you say, you know, do I really want to be this person that pranks people? Or do I really want to be this person that, um, you know, do I really want to be this person that um curses or says bad words. And then you have to take that with if my parents were to see me doing this, would if my parents were to know I'm watching this or looking to this person as a role model. Or would my parent want this person to come over to my house for dinner? You know, when kids take things with a grain of salt and realize that social media is not always what things are painted as, I think it just helps things become a lot smoother. You know, you have to ask yourself do you want to be this person that's always pranking people or cursing or whatever? And you have to ask yourself also that would you invite this role model over to your mom and dad, like for dinner with your mom and dad, would you want this role model to be next to the dinner table if the Prophet Muhammad was at that dinner table? Would you want to be, um, would you want to be with this person? Like, would you want this person to be a means for you to get to Jannah? Right. There's even hadiths and verses in the Quran that talk about, you know, that, you know, we'll we'll basically be in Jannah thinking about our friends and where are they and we'll find them in Jahannam. Or even on the Day of Judgment, we'll say, you know, I wish I didn't take that one person as a friend. So when it comes to finding role models as kids, children, adults, teenagers, whoever it is, we have to take things with a grain of salt, realize that social media isn't painting um, a proper picture, Um, knowing that everyone goes through challenges. Um, and also just making sure that we're keeping ourselves in check, like, you know, asking, asking those questions, like, you know, would you want this person to be that person that does A, B, C, D? Like, you know, for example, would you, if you had a daughter, would you want that person that you're, see as a role model, marrying your daughter? Right. So those are just kind of some checks and checks and balances. It's
0: definitely a really. Uh, important uh, topic as well, because I, I've seen it a lot on, on social media as well. You know, like you mentioned Andrew Tate before. He's definitely been one that's obviously been out there, um, you know, in terms of like what's a male role model or even people like, you know, Elon Musk or, you know, Bill Gates or uh, Steve Jobs. Um, we're so much bombarded with, uh, you know, being a billionaire and being rich as being a good role model, especially for men. And whereas with women, you're bombarded with these like, um, you know, you got all all these like celebrities, all the, you know, these uh, really edited photos to make them, you know, viewed as, you know, what an ideal woman should be. Um, And so, you know, I I guess engaging within that as well, when it comes to finding a good role model, um, how difficult or how important is it to counter those kind of narratives?
1: It's hard. And social media doesn't help. You mentioned, like, you know, riches, uh, being rich and all of that. The algorithm is very real, right? So when I talk about the algorithm being real, you know, the more that you watch, the more that you, like, Google and look up stuff, the more that that's going to be shown on your social media page, right? So no matter how many times you you, you Google, like, how to get rich, You're going to keep finding Dave Ramsey videos. You're going to keep finding these videos of whatever. Um, My social media continuously shows me home improvement stuff because I'm trying to improve my home right now. Right. So if you are all about, you know, the way that you look working out, blah, blah, blah. That's the only videos you're going to be looking at. Right. You're going to be looking at how to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. Brand, brandon martin is going to come up on your feed you're going to be like oh i look up look at this guy's muscles blah 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 i want to be like him right so you got to understand that you know these people that, let's say they take steroids are they your role model now right so it's very difficult when the algorithm is there because your social media is going to is going to start to dictate who what your mind is going to be set as as a role model I mean, how much Andrew Tate videos I see, how much Brandon, I watched one video of this guy, Brandon Martin. And he just shows up everywhere I go, right? So it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Um, so you just, you just got to be aware, cautious, um, and just know that at the end of the day, you know, who you want to be is who you want to be. Not what other people want you to, to, to see as or be as, and, realize that, you know, there's more behind the makeup, there's more behind the smile, there's more behind things that that, that social media portrays.
0: I think that that's, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely become uh, such a major, uh, you know, issue, even though, you know, for many, I think social media was just supposed to be for fun. It's just not really, it's not really become that. And, you know, I, I think that to build off what you said, I, I remember reading an article about how bad TikTok's algorithm is. And TikTok's one that a lot of, uh, you know, Muslim youth are also very, you know, uh, into as well. I mean, for good and bad, I mean, TikTok, I'm not going to just generalize it, but I guess there is good and bad to every social media. But I mean, for sure, TikTok, I remember reading had uh, an algorithm that was basically set up to only show people that were perceived to be good looking, right? So it's almost like it's just, uh, it's already biased against someone, and it's not really set up to be um, as natural as I think it tries to, to sound. But um, I, I really did enjoy your, your your points here, specifically about you know Islam's connection to social media, which is where I, I wanted to delve into next. Um, and this is a topic that I feel like we could spend a whole you know I don't know episodes and episodes on. But I did want to get your opinion because you do engage with the Muslim community so much through social media. And there was this tweet that I saw that mentioned about how there was a whole generation of Muslims who had been raised on, uh, you know, on social media and have learned Islam through social media. Right. It's almost like, you know, the old uh, joke about Sheikh Google. Right. The, uh, The Google being the source for all sunnas and hadiths and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Because it's just so easy to go to Google or social media for an answer. Um, And uh, the tweet was mentioning about how there's good and bad in that, obviously, because the good obviously is that you can engage. But the bad is that the characteristics that people often learn about, you know, are either muddled, either they're specifically chosen because the person who's delivering the information has an ulterior motive or they have... Uh, a certain you know sect that they're just trying to focus on, um, which I, I'm not going to get into in terms of the problems with that, but nonetheless, obviously, um, you know Islam is not just one point of view uh, in a specific way of understanding things, right? There's often a lot of more complexities in, in many of these issues that require more than just saying yes and no and a black and white answer. But nonetheless, people will engage, people will learn more about Islam through social media. So how do you look at this as someone who does use social media to spread the message of Islam? You know, how, how have you personally adjusted to this and how have you seen what is maybe good and bad in terms of how Islamic knowledge is being spread through social media?
1: Yeah, I mean, social media is a double-edged sword. Um, there's a lot of great things on there, but there's a lot of bad things. For example, you'll never know if um, a hadith is something that's actually a hadith or it could just be a saying. Right. I've seen so many quotes that say uh, Imam Ali said this, and it's actually like from a Disney movie. Right. And it's like, like, how can you really trust something online? Islam, anything Islamic online should be taken as if it is a seed and you decide if you want to plant it or not. Right. You find a verse and you read that verse. Okay. Now what do you do with that verse? How do you use it? How do you implement this knowledge? One of the things that you'll be asked about on the day of judgment, that all of us will be asked about, and the son of Adam's feet will not move until they're asked about these things. One of them is the knowledge that you have and what you did with it. You finding that there's this hadith online, that there's this verse that you found, or something's halal or haram. And now all of a sudden it's like, what do you do with that knowledge? Right? Um, how many times you mentioned Sheikh Google, you know, how many times have I've had people come up to me and say, hey, is um, you know, is, is is playing with yourself haram? And I'm like, well, how many people have you asked before me that question? And it's like, oh, I've done my research online, and it's always haram, haram, haram. I'm like, so what difference do you think? Uh, like, are you grocery shopping right? Are you fatwa shopping right now, trying to find one person that says it's okay for you to do it when you know that it's wrong? Like, you obviously know that it's wrong. So why are you doing it? You'll find, you know, these like... Um, there, there's some great sheikhs online that are, you know, like doing like, you know, fatwa, um, like they, they do like questions and answers. And a lot of times in the questions, a lot of times in the comments, you'll find just people being really rude. Like these are people that are learned that are educated. And the people that are usually commenting are people that are learned through one minute reels. And they think that they know a book that will take a year to read. Um, one of my good friends, Osama, uh, we were going through an Imam al-Ghazali book together, and it must have took taken a year and a half to get through, like, two chapters. Every day or every week, once a, once a week, we would sit for, like, two hours and just dive into the story. And a lot of these bigger sheikhs that you see are studied, they're learned, and the one-minute thing that they put out there is really made for you to venture down that path. It's not made for you to be like, Okay, now I'm going to show my mom something. This person said a one-minute video about whatever. Now I'm going to you know, go tell my mom whatever. Um, I remember, like for example, this past Friday, I spoke about Prophet Nuh, And one of the things that I mentioned was that Prophet Nuh never dragged his son on the boat. He kept telling him, come on the boat, but he never forced him on the boat, the same way that we should never force our children to wear hijab or to pray. But then I had to clarify myself that we need to also listen to our parents, listen to our, the advice of our parents, because Prophet Noah said, come on the boat, and his son didn't listen to him, and he got swept under the waves. So how many times are you going to ignore your parents and not listen to them before the waves come to drown you? So a lot of times, if I mention that first part, kids will use that to their parents and say, like, as, as like, no, Right. Or they'll send this video to someone and say, look, look what this person said. Not without context, context, right? Without context. And that and that's what social media does. It very it manipulates a lot of things. It makes you think that you're a scholar because you watched 30 seconds of a reel. And then you throw that in someone's face. And then when you're pushed back on that, you realize you have very little to know. And that's what Islam on social media is really there for. Yes, you can spread good To an audience. But yeah, you can get addicted to arrogance, get addicted to how many times, like to be very transparent. I see these videos that have like millions and millions of views, and all they're doing is showing a person brushing their teeth, exfoliating their face, praying Fejr, and then I'm like, and making like a cup of coffee, and then I'm like, I could do that. As soon as I set up a camera, I'm like, and, and I'm like, this is so weird. Like, why would anyone record themselves getting out of their bed? Like, I get it. it; it works for some people. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but like for me, it's like, am I really doing this for the views to show people that when I get up in the in the morning, like I pray and I'm showing a picture of that and I'm making it just feels very weird to me. It doesn't feel organic to me to want to do that. And um, you know, for people to put like my daily routine. Yeah, I, I want to see what's your daily routine really like. Do you really do what you do every day? Like there's people that are like, yeah, I wake up at four in the morning every day. Yeah, really? Like, do you really? <laughs> and like, and then like, the, there's some people that like, what I've come to realize, you know, going back to role models, there's a lot of role models that I have that I've seen online that are like people I look up to. I always watch their videos and I realize their lifestyle is completely different than mine. They don't have children and they're 50 or 40 years old and they're millionaires and they wake up every morning at 4 o'clock and they go to the gym and they eat healthy. Well, yeah, you don't have kids. You don't have to eat their 15 chicken nuggets that they didn't eat in their plate. You don't have to wake up 2 in the morning and then get exhausted because you have to change their diaper. Your lifestyle is way different than mine. So you know, with social media, it's like you can be whoever you want on social media. Um, Islamically or, or not. And I think that from an Islamic content lens, you have to be very careful what your intention is every time you post. You have to make sure that things are authentic. You have to make sure that you also realize that it's not something that you learn and that's it. You have to realize that you have to learn, you have to teach, you have to dive into it more and really study what people are putting out there.
0: Okay. I think then uh, I have two maybe difficult questions to answer, but I think nonetheless important ones, um, then, you know, first, is social media an effective way to deliver Islamic knowledge? Like, is this something the Muslim community should be more afraid of in the way that we've developed to deliver Islamic knowledge? Whereas previously, historically, it would be, oh, you want to learn, go to the masjid, go to a scholar, right? I think there's that famous story of I think it's uh, Imam Bukhari, where he was uh, approached by a governor who told him he wanted to come to his palace to to uh, you know teach his children. And Bukhari said, "Nope, come to the masjid, right? Like you come to the masjid and you learn." So, like, is that being replaced now by social media, and is that effective?
1: It, it, it's it's one way of learning. It's not the way of learning, right? If if you want to learn Islam. You you don't do it on Instagram, maybe on YouTube. Maybe, you know, maybe you can watch like a series on YouTube, dive into a book. Um, Look, Islam is something for me, the way that I see it, it's a progressive state of mind. It's not an all or nothing approach. When a person becomes a Muslim, they don't just stop every single bad habit that they do. And, you know, they're the perfect Muslim. It takes time to fall in love with certain things to develop a habit, to get rid of bad habits. I know people that were addicted to watching things haram online. Things are, it takes time. So yeah, a person may, you know, me, myself, Islam started, it didn't just start with an epiphany. There were three moments that were like, Islam was like dropped into my heart. The first one was, um, I had this like Quran um, that would be in my car on like my rearview mirror that I would look at anytime. Something like, like I remember one time I was doing something haram and I'm on my way home and I was just staring at it the whole time. One of the times I'll never forget it, someone posted a Buna Muhammad video, two minute spoken word poet. Never thought anything of it. This person had shared that thing put in my. I'm like, ooh, this is. I'm curious about this. Like, who is this person that this guy's talking about? So from that you listen to bigger lectures and then you read books and in terms of replacing I wouldn't say replacing I would say that it's a tool to get people to a point where they're diving more into the ocean of Islam versus taking it at what's at the surface there's a difference between um, there's a difference between being on a boat on the water and being into the water social media is like being on the boat but if you really want to benefit from islam you dive into that water and you swim you go into the depths of it and you pull out gems and um so i wouldn't say it's replacing i would just say more it's it's just a different avenue to gravitate certain people towards and pull them into a way where they're able to progress into a a part in life where they're they fall in love with the ocean of islam versus water of the if that makes sense
0: wow no that that's that's a very very good way of putting it i've never really thought of that um but yeah i think that that's very uh that's very important because you're right like there's just so much basic information you could say on social media where it it doesn't really get into what i think is is the heart of it and you know I, i know um, you know, one of the institutes that I always follow is the Yakin Institute. It's really with Umar Suleiman um, or even, uh, you know, some of the other ones, uh, I think Zaytuna and um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Like they do a lot of these hour long lectures. And when you watch some of these lectures, you realize like, oh, my God, like there's so much more that I didn't even know. Like it was not touched upon. You know, and and i think that myself like just seeing social media but also seeing the difference between what's talked about on social media and then also what these you know actual scholars in these hour long lectures where they debate various positions talk about um, you can you can see almost the difference in the verification of the information they're providing right there's almost a legitimacy that they provide so i think then the second tough question is how does someone verify the Islamic information they receive uh, from social media?
1: Yeah, d- just to jump back a little bit, these people that are doing these hour lectures, it comes from them reading hours and hours of books. Like um, going back to my friend Osama, he, he he's went to Morocco for a, years, a couple years to like learn from people. Uh, to learn from sheikhs and, and teachers. and he's like it's very difficult to read an entire book and pull from that book a 30 minute talk. Like it's it's very for me to write a khutbah it takes time. It's not just I go up there and I start talking. You have to pull all of these things and basically puzzle piece it into something. So you know the, your question is like how do we verify right? Verifying is that it's very difficult to say is that true, and then just go boom, check, 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 redo your research, and you know there, there's different ways to verify it. What I usually do is that if there's trusted people that I know that are online, um, that I can, that I know that that have the education, the experience, right? When you go to a doctor, you don't ask them, "Tell me every single thing about this pill." tell me every single thing about this surgery you you trust them right and i think with sheikhs we do have to trust them you know lately there's been you know um we, we have to trust our sheikhs right we have to realize that their intentions you know everyone's human at the end of the day right mm-hmm. if you really truly think in your heart that you need to verify something that a sheikh says then go find another sheikh to verify it with and, you know, yeah, you could read sirah, you could read hadith. Sometimes when you read a hadith, you have no idea about the context of it. When you read a verse of the Qur'an, you have zero context of it. You just take it with the value that you want. So you have to be learned. And our sheikhs are learned. So it's very difficult for a layman, just a random human being, to just try to verify something on their own. If they do, it's a big process, Right. Islam QA, all of these like websites and stuff like that. To navigate through those, you have to then find out like who are these people. So you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of trying to figure out something and you go down this rabbit hole. I think there does need to be a level of trust. The same way that we would trust, you know, a doctor or a pharmacist with the procedure or the medicine that they're giving us. We trust that it'll work. I think with sheikhs, Especially the ones that we know are educated, that are learned, that have gone to school, that have PhDs and, and, and have studied. Um, I think we've become a society that's very um, harsh on information, on people that give us information. We're, we're, we've just become a comment section. It's all we are, comment sections. We always want to reply to people. We always want to say, put our two cents in or why you're wrong and I'm right, even though I know that I'm wrong. I'm going to make myself sound right. Like there's been so many times where I'm sitting on in work meetings and people sound like, like they're Joe Rogan. Like they're on a podcast or something like you're in a work meeting and you're talking like whatever, like we've just become a society where everyone wants to put their two cents in and everyone's wrong and you're right. And I think that we have to be more trustworthy. Of course it's difficult because it's very easy to break trust and, you know, we see in social media one person do something wrong and then we paint a whole brush on every single person in the industry when that's not the case. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, there has to be a level of, you know, if you really want to verify something, go verify it. Go ask another sheikh. Go learn about something. Go study. Go do your part. Right. And then you'll, you'll <laughs> it'll keep you busy. Um. But it'll definitely you'll dive into that ocean of Islam trying to verify something. You know, I I, I remember yesterday I saw something where there was this, like this guy from the part, British Parliament. He was like anti-Muslim, and then he became a Muslim because he was trying to write a book about it. So he's trying to verify, it, and he became a Muslim out of it. So you know, there's nothing wrong with verifying. Um, it's just. Know that it's a very intensive process. It's not just googling something and saying yeah, it's true, or asking chat GBT to explain. You really have to know
0: your stuff. Do you think that there's maybe a I don't want to I don't know if, I don't know if the word ignorance is is the best, but along the lines of ignorance, uh, do you think that there's just not a lack or there's a lack of understanding of what it means to be a scholar within the Muslim community? you know, this, this idea that, oh, they're just, you know, they've read the Quran a few times. That's what made them a scholar, you know, because, I mean, I myself have looked into, um, you know, many of you know my, my, I have a few friends who have become scholars themselves. Um, and, you know, that, that there's a lot that goes behind that. Um, and even, you know, some of that, I, I don't know, right, in terms of the actual commitment that goes behind that. Um, do you think there's just a lack of understanding within the Muslim community as to what it actually means to become a scholar? I don't
1: think people know what imams really do and sheikhs do and scholars do. Um, I remember, so my father, he's a board member. He is the type of person that would go change the light bulb at the masjid. There's no like maintenance worker. He is the guy and he's a board member. He's the president of the board. And from the inside out and from the outside in, you'll never know what board board members you're just going to think are bad people. My dad would scarf down iftar at home when a, when the whole family's here and just leave to go to the masjid to take care of other people that are going to say that the board are evil, right? With sheikhs and imams, sheikhs wake up at two in the morning and have to go to the hospital because someone died sheikhs have to stay in the, the office three, four, five hours while their own family on a Saturday is at home or at a barbecue or at a park. And they're in the office trying to do a counseling session. I'm not saying every single email, I'm not going to paint a picture because there's some imams that are not active. There's some board members that are lazy, but generally when you look at imams, they're at every wedding. Again, I'm not going to generalize it, but there's a lot of imams that are at weddings, they're at f- gatherings, um, births of children, funerals, janazes, all of this, and their family gets pushed aside. And I know quite a few imams that will tell me that they lost their children, that their own children have done zina, and these are sheikhs, kids, right? And th- a few of these, I'm not saying a lot of them, that I've, I've spoken to, but there have been a few that have said they lost their own family, Um so I think that people don't really know what imams do. And then it's like, well, all oh, these sheikhs are making this much money. Who's going to pay our... You know, these are people that are leading a community. These are people that... Imam is a full-time job. It's a 12, 24-hour job. It's not like a 9 to 5 clock in and out. You're leading a community. It's a very difficult job. So when an imam asks for an honorarium, you shouldn't be like, what's wrong with you? Do it for lillah. This is my career, right? It, it, it's easy to say that when you're looking from the outside in but when you've sit when you've sat with scholars, when you've sat with sheikhs, when you've shadowed sheikhs or board members, it's easier to say something but when you live it and see it it's hard. you know I, I've I've been with sheikhs going to places houses or people's homes and doing rukaya on them and it's like honest I remember one time on my birthday, it was like my first birthday when I was married. And the Sheikh's like, let's go to a fundraiser. And my wife wants to take me out to dinner and cake. And it was like a three-hour ride to Ohio. I go to, I go there. I come back. I'm tired. It was like 7 o'clock at night. And I was like, man, I spent my birthday like this. Can you imagine every single day like not being there for your kids, not being there for your family? So I think we're very hard on imams. We're very hard on board members. We don't know the reality that they live in. I'm not and I, I'm not saying every imam is like this, but, you know, who's going to marry people off? Who's going to go to the janazah and pray janazah? Um, the other day, I remember, um, it was like right before Ramadan, someone was like, can you lead janazah? And I'm like, I, I got to go. He's like, there's no one to lead janazah. I'm like, what What do you mean? There's no one to lead janazah. He's like, yeah, there's no imam here. I've gone to a lot of communities where there have not been imams for like ten years. My own community in uh, in Dearborn, there's like imams are leaving to do fundraising. Like they're like, you know, I'm I, I'm I am i i do not want to lead a community anymore because there's just so many layers and elements and disrespect and you know. And I'm not I'm not saying this is what what what's going on, but generally what I see, and it's like communities then are falling through the cracks because. The imams are leaving. I know a lot of communities in um, New Jersey, for example. There was like in an, an Ohio where there's like five, six imams in one week just dropping, and um, and then the the communities crash. And it's like, well, did we put too much pressure on our imams and only paid them fifteen dollars an hour when all the doctors are here in the first row, getting paid millions of dollars, and you know. It's uh it's a it's a it's a topic that definitely needs more diving into. Um, but I don't want to generalize things, but know that I think that we really don't know what imams go through and sheikhs go through. And I'm not a sheikh or imam, but I've shadowed a lot of them and I know that it's a twenty four hour job. You drop what you're doing, you drop family gatherings, so you can be there for other people's families.
0: Uh I I, I know a few uh my own community has had its own uh, interesting history with imams as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally understand, uh, you know, that, that whole issue. Um, and, and it's definitely one that as a community we, we have to deal with. I think it's one that um, is, is unfortunately become a more common thing, I think, because of just uh, I, I often hear this where people say, well, you know, back home, the imam, you know, he, he didn't uh, have a, a salary um and it's it's just kind of a, a silly thing because usually either back home the government gave the salary to uh, an actually mom or there was some sort of you know uh, some sort of funding that they were getting right and yet you you often you do often see it and and i agree with you you know that these imams don't get paid or they don't get as much um you know focus as i think that they should and people just kind of assume it'll be a charity uh that you know the knowledge or, or the the work that they can do, um, so it is definitely something. And I think there were some great points there about what we need to improve on. Um, I, I think also then, if you could just touch on this for me a few minutes, um, and then I think we can just wrap it up here. The, the last point: uh, What would you say to a young, you know, Islamic uh, scholar or just uh, you know student who wants to learn, um, but you know often does see you know the problems within? Uh, you know, the way that some scholars are treated? How do you think that they should sort of approach not only gaining knowledge, but then also, you know, entering into the field of being someone that is now knowledgeable?
1: I think the biggest thing is never quit. Don't quit on people. Um, Be the change. There was a chef that I, I met in Chicago. We went on for a, a walk, and he was telling me that, you know, everything that that I mentioned in terms of, like, disrespect and all of that, he walked into a masjid and there was a position open, and he said, this is how it's going to be. I want this, this, this. I want green lights on this. I don't want you to, I don't want to fight with the board on anything. You guys got to trust me. I got to trust you. And he just laid it how it is. I think that there needs to be more structure you know, when, when, when we have people that are very into project management and all of that, they should be on the board. When we have people that have great ideas that are finance majors, they should be helping the massages with accounting and building funds and different streams of revenue, like, you know, real estate and, you know, putting people in there or whatever, just to, whatever it is. I think with a person that's trying to learn, know that, you know, there's going to be struggle, but you got to be that change, and that's what imams are. Imams are leaders, so you have to realize that when you're when you sometimes are leading a project, when you're le- managing people, it's going to be difficult at first. There's going to be a lot of bumps, but don't be discouraged by it. Be the change that you need to be. Go to people and say, "No, this is how we're going to start doing things." Right? It, it takes time. It, t- it takes time, and um, and that's with anything. So a person that's you know they're, they're like, "No, I." Did. I can't be an imam, or I can't be this, or I can't be that. There's struggle anywhere you go. Um, you just got to be the difference. You got to be the, the difference maker. You got to be the voice for the future.
0: Alhamdulillah, um, that's, that's a very uh, good uh, answer, and I think that's a great way to, to end this uh, episode. Um, thank you so much for joining me uh, for the episode. Uh, but just before we go, I did want to have four rapid-fire questions for you just to end this on maybe a more positive note and just to maybe, I guess, uh, get more, uh, you know, I guess, understanding about you as a person as well. Uh, so it'd be four really random questions. Um, I think the first one uh, is one that I like to ask just because it's probably the most random. Um, but let's say you wake up in the morning, right? It's a sunny day. It's a nice day outside. And you're given a choice between pancakes or waffles. What do you pick?
1: Man, it's a hard one. I w- I would say I love waffles. I do like waffles a lot. Definitely with chicken and waffles. Waffles, I would say.
0: Chicken and waffles, mm. that's yeah. Okay, what toppings would you put on the waffles, aside from chicken?
1: So there's two. I used to – the way that I would make waffles, there would be two different ways. My favorite way is um, it, it would be with the chicken. I'd put hot sauce on it and barbecue sauce and honey. If I had to go more of the sweet way, it would be like a whipped cream, mm. syrup, um, and like a sprinkles, something like that, and chocolate chips.
0: Wow. Okay. That's very American. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I guess uh, kind of building off of that as well, uh, what is your uh, ethnic and uh, cultural background? And what would, what's your favorite breakfast food from your culture?
1: So um, I'm Arab. I was born and raised here. My father, my mother was born and raised here. My father was born and raised in Lebanon and my, uh, my mother's grandparents are born and raised in Lebanon. So I'm Lebanese. Um, my favorite Arabic breakfast is probably going to be Mena'ish, um, between Mena'ish and yeah, Mena'ish is number one, probably like meat or cheese Mena'ish.
0: And what is that? What is it? Oh, what, oh, what is yeah, it? What it's is, yeah. uh,
1: so it's like it's like bread with like melted cheese in it. That's like a fluffy bread, uh, like a pita bread, but it's fluffy. And there's cheese. There's zaatar on it that you could put or meat. Um, and you can get it. They usually make it in like a like a fire a wood fire oven um, in, in in a lot of the Middle Eastern bakeries.
0: That sounds oh, delicious. Yeah. Um, okay, so next question. Uh, what is your favorite Islamic book? Or uh, what's your just favorite read? Not necessarily just like a, a pure scholar read, but just your favorite book that you just keep going back to, aside from the Quran.
1: Looking at my books right now, um, I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, my favorite one that I always go to is Ibn Kathir's Stories of the Prophets. Um, my favorite book that I think most people should read. Um, there's a couple other ones that I that I go back to. Like, there's like a few of them, like uh, Purification of the Heart, Hamza Yusuf, Tazkiyah. Um, probably like m- one of my favorite ones so far that I'm reading. <laughs> Um, are these ones there's another one by Mika'il where it talks about uh, I forgot what the there, there's two of them that he wrote one of them is um, it's like active listening and then the, the first one I forgot what it is but definitely Hisham al awadhi Children Around the Prophet is a great read um this is one that i just fell in love with and then i bought his other book that he has um how to be extraordinary like the prophet muhammad so hisham al Awadi is a good one yasmin mujahid um, um and kind of the older stuff like imam al Ghazali, ibn kathir um
0: anything sirah is great No, that was an excellent pick. So I, I love asking that question just because uh, I, myself, I, I've i been trying to build up my own library as well. So always love to get some uh, reading recommendations. Um, so third question, and this one you can kind of relate with your kids here, but what was your favorite toy as a child? Mm, my favorite toy by far was
1: video games. Is that, a, <laughs> is that a toy I can say or no?
0: Yeah, that's a toy. Yeah, I, I yeah. can relate with that. Uh, so yeah,
1: I, I had um, Nintendo, Sega, like, the old school where you, like, blow into the cartridge and, like, I'll, I'll swap it out. Um And I loved, like, Mario, Tetris, Pokemon. Those, those those were by far, like, some of my most, you know, video games were was, was something I always got lost into. Um, but, you know, I definitely played, like, you know, basketball growing up. And, um, but yeah, my favorite toy by far was, like, I had a Game Boys and, and all that cool stuff.
0: All right. Perfect. Last uh, rapid fire question here. Uh, maybe one that uh, I guess you can, you know, take your time thinking through this. But uh, aside from the Prophet Muhammad, if you could meet any Islamic hero or person from history, uh, who would it be and why? Um, and, and the reason I'm asking this is because I often did a, a past and present heroes, uh, Islamic heroes uh, podcast episode. So I'm curious if you have any specific hero that you've always wanted to meet a profit or non-profit or uh let's say uh you can do one profit and then one uh, non-profit
1: my favorite hero that i would <clears throat> my favorite hero that i would want to meet would be abu bakr um he, his friendship always just thinking of his friendship with the Prophet Muhammad always makes me emotional. Uh, so Abu Bakr would definitely be one, and then if if I had to meet a prophet, it would it would be Prophet Musa or Prophet Yusuf. Um, those would be my my two prophets, and then, and then uh, that I would want to meet. And then Abu Bakr an, is definitely just between him and Bilal are the two that I just admire so much.
0: Perfect. Uh, Those are excellent uh, answers again. um, Again, and uh, that's all for the rapid fire questions. So thank you so much for joining me for uh, this podcast episode. It's been really great talking to you. We covered some really, really great topics here, Uh, mainly, you know, the lectures for kids and reaching out to children specifically, Uh, you know, good role models and, you know, where to find them, how to approach the idea of finding a role model. And then also, finally, a big topic that uh, a lot of people do talk about and that is important for us to discuss is social media's role within Islam. Um, So again, Bilal, thank you so much for uh, joining uh, and for giving me this opportunity to interview you. It's been great getting to know you uh, and to discuss these various topics. I hope to do it again uh where can people reach out to you uh and where are you uh you know uh where can they find you on either social media or on the internet yeah so my so my instagram is
1: your brother bilal y-o-u-r brother b-r-o-t-h-e-r bilal b-e-l-a-l and then um, a little bit more about like um, a little bit more about me and my story different projects that I've worked on, podcasts that I've been on or projects that I've been a part of, organizations I've been a part of, YouTube videos and all of that, um, you can just check out uh, com. So my first name, B-E-L-A-L, my last name E-L-K-A-D-R-I.com, articles that I've written, kind of my whole um, Islamic Dawah portfolio is, is, is could be found on my website.
0: Alhamdulillah, that's all, uh, that's perfect, um, thank you again so much for uh, this interview, uh, and inshallah, we'll do it again. And with that being said as well, that's all for today's episode, I really do hope you guys enjoyed listening to my interview with Bilal Al-Qadri, as I stated in the beginning of the episode, I really enjoyed talking to Bilal, he's a wonderful person to listen to, and he has some great insight on topics that I think not everyone always talks about within the Muslim community, right? I love talking about how to give dawah to young children. How many people talk about that, right? That's why I really enjoy talking to Bilal. He's on top of things like that. He's, he's in that area of Islam where he's, he's doing these kind of things that no one necessarily does enough, but is so valuable and important that it almost makes you wonder, why don't we do this more, right? But nonetheless, again, I hope you guys did enjoy all the topics that we covered for today's episode. If you could also do me one big favor, and that's follow me on social media. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter, or or X, I guess it's called now. I keep calling it Twitter. I think I called it Twitter in the last episode as well. It's still Twitter in my mind, as I'm sure is in many of yours, uh, but nonetheless, please follow me on those social media. Uh, it's MIB podcast. It's M I Y B P podcast. Uh, the M I Y B and the P are all capital. Uh, please follow me on Instagram and on Twitter. Again, on Instagram, I will update more about future podcast episodes as well as any future updates for the podcast as well. Uh, on on Twitter, I sometimes post every now and then, but not really. Um, I just haven't got. Yeah, you know, I, I don't really love Twitter that much. Instagram is just much easier, in my opinion, when it comes to the podcast. But again, please do give me a follow on social media, as well as if you did enjoy today's podcast episode, please, please give me a follow on whatever podcast host you're listening to this from, either Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. It doesn't matter. Please follow. Uh, you know, even if it's 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 not one of those three, any of them. Just follow the podcast, please. If you did enjoy the episode, also remember to give a five star review. This allows me to continue making episodes and it also gives me some feedback as to how I can improve the podcast as well. And also, if you do want to reach out to me on Instagram to give me feedback or encouragement or whatever, please do. I don't mind talking to you guys, I don't mind reaching out to people either. I enjoy any sort of feedback. It just, in my opinion, makes a podcast better and in turn, It makes the podcast better for everyone else. So that's all I have for today's episode. Again, I hope you enjoyed it. Inshallah, we'll meet again.